0: Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly.
1: Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are always ready to help you personalize your insurance plan so you can create a policy that fits your needs. You can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. And you can always call one of the State Farm agents in neighborhoods across the country. Get a great rate without sacrificing great service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
0: This episode is brought to you by Audible. In case you didn't know, Audible.com is the premier provider of digital audiobooks with over 85,000 titles to choose from. Listeners of this podcast can sign up for a free 14-day trial and receive a free audiobook download. You can cancel at any time before your 14 days are up and keep the audiobook. Or you can continue on and choose from one of their great subscription plans. Today, I would like to recommend The King's Speech by Mark Logue and Peter Conradi. This is the story of Lionel Logue, a commoner from Australia, and Albert George, who was fortunately the second son of George V of the United Kingdom. Fortunate because although um, speeches and public appearances will be required of him, they won't be as many as the first son, Edward, who becomes Edward VIII of the United Kingdom. And Albert George um, has a speech impediment, a stutter. Um, problem speaking, speaking in public, and very shy. And he tries many different things, many different techniques. He sees a lot of different people, but one day he, uh, he and Lionel Logue get together. Now, Lionel Logue is not an official doctor. He doesn't have a degree, but he has spent his life, and he's made it his life's work um, helping people with their speech problems for different reasons, mostly after uh, people come back from World War I who have been gassed and things like that. So they work together for years, and Lionel Logue's approach helps um, Albert, it actually helps him to the point where he, they don't. Uh, Albert doesn't need to see him for about two years. They stay, they stay friends, but he doesn't need his services. So everything's going along fine. Albert gets married, he has kids, and he's going to be able to get through it. It's really still a struggle for him to speak, but he's he's able to manage, and things are, you know look well for him. But. On uh, January 1936, king, the, king George V dies, Edward becomes king, and now George, who never expected this, is suddenly you know, next in line to become king. Well, that's one thing, but then just with, uh, short of a year, uh, Edward abdicates the throne uh, in December of 1936 for love. He wants to marry Miss Wallace Simpson, and now George is going to become king of the uh, United Kingdom, and he has to deal with this, so he needs Lionel Logue back. But then, three years later... World War II starts, and the king is definitely more needed with a lot more public uh, speeches and public appearances, and he is going to need on Logue services once again. So it's an amazing story, and the movie is out, and of course I will be going to see the movie um, as soon as I can afford uh, you know, to go see it with the price of gas and price of uh, movie tickets going up, but anyway... Um, I'm sure the movie's good, but to get more of a detailed story, it's, it's definitely, you would definitely want to check out the book, and you get the story behind the story, because Mark Logue, one of the writers, is the grandson of Lionel Logue. He's the one who had all his uh, papers and all his notes and things like that, so he put the book together. Peter Conradi is a, is a writer for one of the newspapers, so you can get the story behind the story, and it really is amazing, and I think you'll enjoy it very much. Now there are two ways to sign up for this free trial. You can go to my website worldwar2podcast.net and click on the banner or you can go to audibletrial.com/worldwar2podcast. Again that's audibletrialcom world War 2 podcast That way they'll know who sent you. Thank you very much. But if you need another reason to go to my website, I have one. When you get time, go to my website worldwar2podcast.net. Look at the top of the screen and click on the video selection. I have about six um, um, videos on there from YouTube and things like that. And you'll see one on there that very few people know about. Even though people that know World War II, there's another aspect that I was able to find. Um, so check it out. You'll know which one it is right away because I just put it on there uh, yesterday. So check it out, and it's something that very few people know about. I think you'll be fascinated by it, and you'll be able to do more research, and I'll probably cover it later. But, again, it's, it's pretty neat. It's very, uh, not very well known, but it is a very fascinating story. So, here is the uh, interview I have with Laszlo Montgomery of the China History Podcast. Um, I just wanted to give you a heads up. I had some technical issues, nothing too major. Um, As you're listening, when you're about halfway through it for about five minutes, the quality of the audio drops a little bit, and it's all on my side. Um, I live live in the middle of nowhere, and my uh, internet connection's not. As good as it could be. So, uh, Laszlo was gracious enough, we actually recorded it twice, and so I had to slip in a little of my recording. Again, um, you hear everything, everything's fine, you'll just notice the change, and it only lasts for about five minutes, and then it goes back to the, the good quality. But I just wanted to give you a heads up, so do not attempt to adjust your iPod. Um, and again, I want to apologize to the listeners. I want to apologize to Laszlo Montgomery of the China History Podcast. But we got it in there. You can still hear, hear everything. It's an amazing story. The Long March uh, is a, not only allows the Communist Party to survive in China, but it also allows Mao Zedong to come and be ahead of the uh, Communist Party and to stay there. So it's a really amazing story. But I just wanted to uh, let you know what to expect. Thank you. Hello, and thank you for listening to a History of World War II podcast, Episode 19, The Long March. Well, as promised, we have Laszlo Montgomery with us from the China History Podcast. Hello, Laszlo.
1: Hi, Ray. Thanks for inviting me on your show this week.
0: Thank you for accepting. So uh, on the last podcast, I was giving everybody a little um, intro into uh, stuff we've talked about, how we met, and that both started our podcast roughly the same time. And that um, you were waiting for someone to do a podcast on China, and I was waiting for someone to do one on World War II, and I think we both just got tired of waiting and started our own.
1: Yeah, that's how it worked. That's how it worked, and I'm still waiting for a China history podcast. (laughs) There's only mine.
0: Yeah, and I'm still waiting, too. I mean there's a lot of uh, snippets out there, but just kind of an overall World War II one, I think I just got frustrated and decided to dust off all the books and take a stab at it. Now I was telling everybody um uh kind of your background that you started you started studying the language I think it was in uh, 1979 when you started studying Mandarin.
1: Yeah, there was 1979 was uh, when China when US normalized relations with China, Jimmy Carter was president and there was a a promise of a whole new world in US China trade and uh diplomatic relations and so I uh was a history major at the time, so I took on a second major and began studying Mandarin. And uh, that was uh, what thirty-two years ago.
0: So Mandarin was your second major. Yes. Now, now I'm really impressed. Okay, and you lived in Hong Kong for a while.
1: Yeah, lived there from '89 to 1998, a year after the uh, uh, Hong Kong was returned to China.
0: That must have been an amazing amazing time
1: it was an, it was an amazing day, very historic day watched it with my with my kids in Hong Kong who couldn 't care less. They were like three years old and <laughs> uh, uh, it was a just a very uh, humid rainy day but we they they had a, there was a fantastic fireworks uh, display that night and uh, it was uh it was very interesting to be watching the history while it happened
0: that's amazing so I was telling everyone you still uh, work um, with I think companies in China and you still travel there um, on a I guess regular or semi-regular basis and I was telling them about the um, I like the way you do your podcasts where you kind of to a certain degree jump around from different subjects because there's so much to cover I mean you couldn't really do it do it chronolo- chronologically because that's what 5,000 years worth of history
1: but I've been doing it. I've been doing
0: it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've been, I just finished. I listened to the latest one, the uh, Ming Dynasty. Was that part one that you put out recently? Part
1: one. Part two will be coming very shortly.
0: Yeah. Just really. Uh, just I was telling, was really amazing stuff because it's you know it's a world I truly know very little about, which is I think uh, why I was intimidated as far as covering China um, during World War II. But um, it's, just listening to your podcast, I feel like I have a you know a better basis for understanding. So when I do read something, it actually makes more sense now.
1: Yeah, it's a very intimidating subject. The names are hard to pronounce, hard to remember, and it's so different from our American history and Western civilization. So it is a little uh, intimidating. But anyway, I try to make it somewhat approachable and uh, uh, just give a good general overview to those that you know, are interested in Chinese history, interested to know, but, you know, maybe not interested enough to go read a history book. But if it's sort of presented in some semi-entertaining format, then uh, perhaps uh, 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 this, uh, then my show was, you know, a good suitable way to to learn it.
0: Yeah, because it's so much easier just to download and listen and kind of take it all in. Um, I, I haven't really been uh, – I haven't really seen a lot of emails from people who've um, asked me why my show is, I, in my opinion, kind of unbalanced. It's pretty much focused on Europe. That's where a lot of my library comes from, my interest comes from, but I'm trying to do a better job, which is one of the reasons I contacted you. But um, you know, when, when Americans I, – well, I guess I should say when citizens of the U.S., I should be geo, as geopolitically correct as I possibly can because like you, I get emails from all over the world. I guess when um, – a lot of U.S. citizens think about World War II. If you don't live on the West Coast or Hawaii or have family in the Navy maybe, you know you think of Hitler and Stalin, Churchill, Battle of the Bulge, um, beaches of Norway, that kind of thing. But I just wanted to do a better job of um, you know, being able to balance it out and focus on Asia. So I might be calling you in the future if that's okay with you. Anytime. Okay, I really appreciate that. So – as far as the Long March is, is concerned, and we're going to cover that in, uh, in detail in a couple of minutes. But is it fair to say that that's, um, I guess maybe the way it's taught to the school children over there, it's kind of like, well, you know, George Washington is to us. You know, a lot of these things really happen, but it does get blown up and become more than just the story. It's, you know, more of what it represents. Yeah, it's, you know, it's part balance. of the
1: whole mythology of the whole revolution. Uh, you know, it was. We have Valley Forge, you know George you know, Washington and the Bastille in uh, Revolutionary France, storming of the Winter Palace in Russia. You know these were all central events in the revolutionary mythology, and for and for uh, uh, China, the Long March uh, sort of plays that role. And actually, things that happen during the Long March are also uh, fodder for uh, uh, you know, pushing the uh, you know the the the, the spirit and all the sacrifices of the old revolutionaries.
0: Right. I'm sure there's lots of movies, lots of books, a lot of memoirs, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, a lot of that, and a, and a lot of it was glorified in in Chinese cinema, <laughs> you know, during the Cultural Revolution, and whatnot. I mean, it's a great story. Uh, I'm yeah. sure. A good deal of it is uh, is true. You know, it's just hard to it's hard to know, you know, how much is exaggerated, how much has been left out. Um, You know, it has to be very carefully polished. You know how the uh, Long march is presented, you know, because it's really is one of one of the pillars of legitimacy of the uh, Communist Party.
0: Right. Well, that's why you're here. So we'll talk about the Long March, and then you straighten me up and let me know if I, um, you know, let me know when I butcher the names or the cities, and <laughs> just keep me on the straight and narrow path.
1: Okay. Great.
0: So the next podcast that I'm going to do uh, on China and Mao and that kind of thing is going to start January 1937. So I figured we could talk about the Long March, um, but then just kind of you know hit the highlights until we get to the end of 1936, and that'll set up the next podcast if that's okay. Sounds so, perfect. Um, all right. So could you give us, give us just like a setup about why it was important for the um, the Communist Party that had been in that area for a couple of years, why it was important for all 80,000 or 100,000, whatever it was, to pick up and, and go through the jungles? Um, just let us, you know, give us an idea of why it was necessary for them to do that.
1: Well, they had been there for a while up in Jiangxi province. Uh, in April 1927, April 12th, 1927, Chiang Kai-shek moved again. You know, there had been an, since the death of Sun Yat-sen in 1925, there had been a, an uneasy peace between the communists and the KMT. And after uh, Chiang Kai-shek you know, uh, uh, got the uh, Big Air do and the Green Gang on his side, and and got them to move against all the communists in Shanghai. I mean, pretty much, almost all of them were wiped out. And those that were not uh, killed in that uh, in that in that whole thing in April of '27, they retreated to Jiangxi Province, which is in the interior of China. Even today. Some parts of it are still pretty backward, but 1930s Jiangxi was, it was just a great hideout place. You know, the, none of the roads uh, you know, that you see today. I mean, it was, it was a good place to hide and that's where they sort of regrouped. And uh, so up in uh, 1927, Mao was up there in Jinggangshan, up in Jiangxi. They set up this Soviet Republic there and they started to, plant some roots and uh train and that's where mao established his uh his theory that you know you don't need the proletariat china's an agrarian nation uh you, you need you need uh you need to have the peasants on your side and incorporate it into the revolution all kinds of weird things that uh do you know went against the soviet orthodoxy and so while so they continue to grow there and 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 Chiang Kai-shek kept trying to root them out, and he had four campaigns to annihilate them. They were called the Annihilation Campaigns. But, you know, they couldn't. uh, It always came down to fighting these guys, on fighting the communists on their terrain, and they're up in the mountains. It was very difficult to to fight them. So Chiang Kai-shek finally... With the fifth and final campaign, they were really meant business and they were going to uh really get them. And they and they started to move in on them and and uh and and, and shrink their slowly encircle them and sort of push them into smaller and smaller territory. And it got to the point in thirty four where the communists said, hey, you know, we got to get out of here. I mean, they're going to just sooner or later, as, as Peng DeHui said, they were drying the pond to catch the fish. Old Chinese saying, just, you know, shrinking down their land to the point where they wouldn't have anywhere to run. So that's where they decided in October 34 to get out of town and head north to safety.
0: Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell
1: Technologies.
0: Okay, and, and just one thing uh, I wanted to ask: the other four annihilation campaigns. One of the reasons that that those did not um, succeed was because Mao had an idea of what um, the nationalists were doing because of the spies the Russians, I believe, had set up for them. Or yeah, the yes, using the, them? the
1: Soviets had infiltrated uh, the KMT, and there was a, the, the communists had a great. Uh, great spy they were they were privy to a great spy network so they they knew a lot about what was going on
0: so um the fifth annihilation army is coming it's it's huge Chiang Kai-shek means business this time he's kind of I guess to a certain degree ignoring the Japanese or focusing on the uh, the, the Chinese communists and he's he's really trying to wipe them out this time so they know they have to take off but even at this point Mao, um, I believe he's not in charge, he's not in charge of, of the government, he's not in charge of the military, but he's already got a bad reputation with some of the leaders, Boku and maybe Joe and Enlai, and uh, they're going to try and not to, to leave him behind.
1: Yeah, Mao was definitely not a popular guy. I mean, he had his allies, of course, but he was not a very popular guy, and again, he had this, you know, these strange, unorthodox uh, theories about how revolution should be made and you know so yeah they wanted to try and leave him behind but he wasn't going to miss out on this he knew the importance of this so and, and really to stay behind meant all, almost certain death so uh he he left with them i believe uh the long march the first uh group started leaving october 16th 1934 across the yudu river Southern part of Jiangxi. That's where they took off, uh, anywhere from eighty to one hundred thousand men, fifty women, twenty thousand administrative cadres, and Mao left a couple days later on the eighteenth, and then it began.
0: Okay, so they're all they're all going on, and then but they have trouble with the nationalists pretty much straight away. Yeah,
1: a month after they're out, they they the Battle of the Xiang River takes place that's the first uh bit of bad luck that the red army faces it's only they're only they've only left Jiangxi for a month and they just get really messed up at this uh at this battle they're they're half the army had crossed the river half the the other half had not even started crossing and they got that's when uh Jiang's and the KMT Forces pounced on them and uh, it the you know of the eighty six thousand or you know whatever it is number of troops that started off, there were only thirty thousand left at the end of this wow. battle. And it just yeah, there were just lots of desertions. The the bad the the, the the baggage train just carrying all the you know the printing presses, party records right. Uh, furniture. I mean, it was like 50 miles long, and they uh, and they couldn't. Uh, this thing was just slowing them down, and they just everything was just jettisoned at this uh, at this battle. So it was a real disaster, and uh, caused a lot of uh, low morale. So it uh, it this one really hurt.
0: So that happens uh, pretty pretty early, and so you have a couple of cross purposes here. I think Chiang Kai Shek is trying to put everybody, push all the communists together, get them to go up north. He wants to be able to keep an eye on them in one location. But Mao was trying to slow down the progress of the march because he needs time to to regain his position as either military and or political leader. So there's cross purposes there. And so after this horrible defeat from the nationalists, I I think it's in mid-January where um, Mao's going to make a move at getting some of his power back. Is that right?
1: Yeah, he uh you know, he had been working with his allies within the party. Uh his two most powerful allies was uh Luo Fu and uh, Wang Jiaxiang. Uh uh these two uh worked with Mao to take down Bo Gu and Otto Braun, also known as Lida. that was the the German uh uh German that the uh, Soviets had sent to to work with the uh, to work with the communists anyway those two Li De, they were really the two most powerful guys and Mao along with Law Fu and Wang Jiaxiang they sort of uh, at the Sun Yi conference that was January fifteenth to seventeenth mm-hmm. in Guizhou they met they rehashed you know what went wrong how did things you know well, how do we so chopped up at the xiang river and what was going wrong what do we got to do and and boku and lita they were both attacked at the meeting and held responsible and mao sort of pounced on them uh, using his proxies and directly and so they lost a lot of prestige so one of the results of the zunyi conference i mean not uh, it's 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 said okay well that's where Mao took over well he didn't really take over but that's where he re- sort of established himself he got into the party secretariat into a, a high military uh, position and uh, the and Boku and Lita they were discredited so that's uh, that was a critical turning point and 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 where Mao really established himself and there there was no stopping him after that.
0: Okay, so that's in mid-January, and then isn't there another battle uh, near the end of January?
1: Yeah, January twenty-eighth, the Battle of Tucheng, mm-hmm. another huge loss for the um, for the Red Army. Another four thousand men killed, which was really ten percent of the Red Army at that point. Wow. Mao was blamed. Uh, the true cause was mostly faulty intel on the size of the of the nationalist forces. But uh, Mao made a comeback from there. He didn't. He wasn't. Uh, you know, although he was faulted for this, it did, wasn't. Uh, wasn't fatal.
0: Right. And
1: by February, wafu hes now the top spot. Mao Gu, who's been in charge all these years, he's now out. Um. And at this point, the um, decision has been made that he should. March with the uh, First Red Army to Sichuan and hook up with Chiang uh, Kuo Tao's Army, Fourth Army, and uh, uh, and meet up with the two armies.
0: Right, but Mao's not ready for that. He's making progress. His man is now in charge, but he's not ready to meet up with um, Chiang Kuo Tao because he's he that man has. Um, a very good reputation, he has a larger army, and he wants to be in charge too. And I think I read yeah, somewhere, is
1: is a much larger army. He's has much greater prestige. Right. Uh, he's really the top guy. And Mao didn't feel like meeting up with him and in his territory and in where he had you know where he was really uh, uh, the top guy. So Mao didn't, was in no hurry to hook up with Zhang Guotao, and he starts uh, creating diversions, and he starts heading back to Zunyi, he ends up taking that town from the nationalists, puts up a great fight, and then, uh, you know, for February, March, and April uh, 1935, he's, you know, being chased and marching all over Guizhou and Yunnan, and... And uh, Chiang Kai-shek is busy putting up all kinds of traps for him and using, you know, hundreds and hundreds, hundreds of thousands of troops at his disposal trying to, you know, intercept Mao and not let him cross the Yangtze River and, you know, keep him from from moving north.
0: Right. So Chiang Kai-shek – I'm sorry, Chiang Kai-shek is trying to still push them north the communist hierarchy agreed to all get together, but Mao is the only one who does not want to go north, so he keeps running all over the place. And then, um, I think it's by the end of April, he just can't fight the group anymore, the hierarchy, and he agrees uh, to go north.
1: Exactly.
0: But even then, they so do they go to... Mao's mm-hmm.
1: troops are down to about 22,000. Uh, uh, down to about 22,000. Wow. So he starts heading towards
0: Sichuan. Okay. And he, even though he's not ready, he pretty much doesn't have a choice and he knows there's going to be some kind of showdown with um, with that commander. Now is it so they so they're marching and I think it's in late May where they crossed the Dadu River which was um, I don't know how to put it it was certainly blown up in the uh, in the legend of the long march.
1: Yeah, the Battle of Luting Bridge um May thirty first, nineteen thirty five. You know, it's just another milestone in the in the long march. It was a very dramatic come from behind, dramatic victory for the communists at this ancient bridge that had been built in the eighteenth century, seventeen oh one, and uh, uh, the battle had huge propaganda value, and it had been milked, you know, <laughs> for years. And then he uh, crossed the Snowy Mountains, <clears throat> which is another dramatic uh, tale of survival in uh, early June of 1935. Mm-hmm. And then he uh, uh, is able to, they meet up in uh, uh, Liangheko, the two armies join up and there's very cordial relations between Zhang kuo and uh, Mao. They hadn't seen each other since 1923. So, you know, even though there was all this uh, competition between the two for supremacy, they had not actually been face-to-face since two years after the founding of the party. So here they are. They're up there in uh, Sichuan and... uh, Uh, Outwardly, everything is okay and Mm -hmm. cordial, but inside, uh, lots of, uh, lots going on.
0: So I think I read somewhere that um, the reason Mao wanted to not meet up with um, Chung Kuo Tao was that he had a reputation for removing or killing people to get what he wanted. You know, Mao had that same reputation, but he was actually, you know, uh, browbeating your opponent is one thing, but knowing that your adversary might kill you if you're in his way is another thing. So these two get together, but they really can't agree on who should run what, and do they pretty much go their separate way, or what happens after they can't agree on who should run things?
1: Uh, Well, they they start heading north. They they go through what's known as the grasslands. Mm -hmm. Uh, Their armies just both suffer terrible, terrible, hardships on this 11,000 foot plateau it, it's been right by between the watersheds of both the Yellow River and Yangtze River and they completely walked into this just no man's land I mean there's mm-hmm. no food it was just grass growing in just the most unha- unhospitable swamps <laughs> and uh, many have called this the worst part of the long march I mean even in August the weather was freezing high up severe hardships and, and, and the stories of you know soldiers eating grass and leather animal skins any dogs anything you get their hands on uh, many mm. comrades left behind in the grasslands uh, but uh, you know and they they, they they get past there and they uh, September uh, 8th 1935, Chiang Guotao Tao and Mao—they're still together. They're at this point—they're arguing on tactics and right. who's in charge. And uh, Mao thought that Chiang Guotao was making some sort of move against him, so he just uh, sort of disappeared and with his army, and uh, just a, and they head off on their own. Mao had spies, you know, within Chiang Guotao's camp two of which uh yang shang kun and uh, li xian you know old revolutionaries who you know were were party leaders up until their they died in the in the 80s uh 90s they informed on Zhang Guotao and said hey you know mao there's this guy's gonna try and bump you off so that's why mao said you know he had to get out of there and um so that's why that's why uh Mao sort of took off very surreptitiously and that was that then it was like an open rift
0: so Mao is heading towards um soviet controlled territory for supplies and support because earlier i can't remember exactly when earlier he had sent an envoy or representative to moscow to plead his case and so he's got that going for him and then he's going to try to get closer to their um where he can get some supplies from them what happens to the um to uh, Cheng Kuo-Tao's army after they split?
1: The, uh, he just gets uh, decimated. He His large force totally wiped out by the... Um, by the. Uh, he had 80,000 troops, like three-quarters of them were killed, and he never made a comeback. Uh, he never was able to make a comeback uh, after that. And once he lost his force, that was really it for him. Mao still held on to his... So anyway, in September 15th. The last battle of the Long March was at a place called Co. Uh, it was against the KMT 14th Division. They guarded this strategic and narrow mountain pass with 1,000-foot high cliffs. And, you know, so the Red Army had to, like, get through this very narrow pass, like only 12 feet across in some parts, with the KMT at the top wow. the blockhouses just shooting down on them. But uh, another thing, just like the Battle of Luting Bridge, the Battle of Latsuko, uh is another one filled with all kinds of just, you know, stories of incredible bravery. And uh, it was a great triumph. You know, uh, Mao had some uh, uh, people, some of his men just climb these mountains and, you know, just rain down grenades and. Whatnot on the uh, nationalist troops, and so they got through. And you know, after a one last skirmish with uh, the uh, Ma, uh, the Ma clan out there in the uh, in the northwest, this was a Muslim uh, uh, clan, the Ma family. They had they were they had sided mm-hmm. with the nationalists, and they had one last skirmish. But after they finished with those guys and made fast work of them. Mao's army did make it to uh, Shanxi Province, and and that was it. September, um, you know, September, October, th- October, and thirty-five. That's pretty much there. they they arrive. Jiang Guotao's army gets there, you know, in shambles. And in October, one year later, uh, the second uh, Red Army that had been you know wandering all over China, led by Marshal. they were the last to arrive October uh, 22nd 1936 was the famous union of the three armies and everybody that had set out on the long march at last in uh, October 36 they were all together once again and from this spot in Shanxi called Yan'an that was became their base for the next 10 years until 1948 and uh, that's where the communist party sort of regrouped
0: amazing so while the long march is over with it it almost sounds like there were more officers than soldiers when you go from like 80,000 to you know maybe less than 10,000 or something like that
1: yeah it was uh You know, but all the great ones were there, Mao, Zhou Enlai, Chen Yun, Zhu De, Hu Yaobang, Lin Biao, Peng Dehuai. I mean, the whole aristocracy of the revolution. I mean, these were the guys. They're they're called the long marchers. You know, they're all dying out. You know, these these were people in their that were in their teens and 20s and 30s, you know, in the 19th. Mm -hmm. So there's not very many of them left. And uh, but they were called the, the long marchers. In 1938, by the way, Zhang Guotao ended up defecting to the uh, uh, Nationalists, so uh, uh, a little postscript to his role in the Long March. He ended up dying in Canada many, many, many years later.
0: So, so during the Long March, Mao is able to manipulate it with his way back into position. He's able to get uh, remove his rivals, he gets the support of the Soviet Union because it kind of tricks them into you know through his envoy. they don't know any radio contact for a lot of this, and so he really is able to get almost I guess everything he wanted out of the long march that he uh, aimed to get when it started
1: that's that's pretty much how it goes and he was really from from that point forward at the end of the long march until Mm -hmm. september 1976 uh when he died he was the man in charge undisputed uh uh leader of the party and over the period of the next you know 10 years Mm -hmm. uh in Yenan and uh you know during the civil war he of course you know Right. It had consolidated his power within the party and started setting up the party.
0: So from like, I guess, what, late 35, 36 until the end of the war, he's going to consolidate so he can be ready for the next struggle, which is to take on the nationalists to see who's going to control China.
1: Yeah. That's amazing. And then, you know, and then remember, and then sort of the last thing is into de- December 12th when they had the Xi'an incident when Jiang Kai-shek was kidnapped by the young marshal Zhang Liang and and coerced into cooperating with uh, Mao and the communists to stop the civil war and, you know, join forces to fight uh, uh, the Japanese, which is what they did till 1945.
0: Yeah. And that was a lot of that was orchestrated by Moscow. They wanted China unified to, unify, to a certain degree. Focus on Japan to keep Japan out of Russian territory. That was just Stalin's nightmare, and he was able to, he was able to bring it off more or less, and it's pretty amazing. That's it. Yeah. So on the next podcast, I'll pick up January 1937 and try to, try to do it some justice, uh, especially with the kidnapping. That's so fascinating. Um, supposedly the young marshals working with Chiang Kai-shek, and, and then, you know, for a while being his prisoner, and. Now couldn't be more happy, but then it gets even more crazy from there. So I'll try to try to cover that in the future. So, Laszlo, again, I want to thank you for being with us for uh, talking about this, and I wanted to thank you for your podcast because it really is a, a window into a whole different world that is pretty much new to me. And I'm going to let you um, sign off, but first I want to just tell everybody, for everyone who's listening to this, if you could please go to the China History Podcast, uh, subscribe to it, rate it, review it, send Lazlo an email because when we do the podcast, we spend a lot of time alone on our computer or with their books, and it's nice to hear from the outside world that, you know, someone appreciates it. So um, for me and Laszlo, just want to say thank you for listening, because uh, without you, there's not much of a point to it, and I'll let Laszlo have the last word.
1: Ray, thank you very much for inviting me on your show for today. Uh, two history podcasters are better than one, I, I, <laughs> I hope, and, and for, for this uh for this topic. So, uh, again, I want to thank you, and uh, I've enjoyed it. And this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Claremont, California. Thanks very much. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go.
0: So the... The weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's uh, it's uh windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We
1: can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.